The Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, the 18th chapter, beginning with the 21st verse. Glory Glory to you, O Lord. Peter came and said to Jesus, Lord, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, not seven times, but I tell you, 77 times. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began the reckoning, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. And as he could not pay, his Lord ordered him to be sold, together with his wife and children and all his possessions, in payment to be made. So the slave fell on his knees before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the Lord of that slave released him and forgave him the debt. But that same slave, as he went out, came upon one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him by the throat, he said, Pay what you owe. Then his fellow slave fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. But he refused. Then he went and threw him into prison until he would pay the debt. When his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their Lord all that had taken place. Then his Lord summoned him and said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his Lord handed him over to be tortured until he would pay his entire debt. So my heavenly Father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise to you, O Christ. Won't you join me now, please, in a word of prayer. Good and gracious God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for the full forgiveness, pardon, and remission of all of our sins. We thank you for restoring us and reconciling us back to yourself. We thank you for reminding us of our origin and our destiny. We thank you that in, with, and through Jesus Christ, your Son, you have made all things well. Lord, we praise you for the beauty of this late summer day. We thank you for this opportunity to gather once again to worship you in spirit and in truth. We seek forgiveness. We seek healing. We seek transformation. Bless us in these areas. Grant us the agency and capacity to be those same things for other people in your name and through the power of your Holy Spirit. For it is in the mighty, matchless, majestic name of Jesus we pray. Let the church say amen. 
My sermon text for today is the Gospel lesson, Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. My sermon title for today is Picking at an Old Wound. Picking at an Old Wound. You may recall that Matthew, being the most conscientiously Jewish of the four Gospels, is largely a manual of Christian teaching organized around five great discourses or teaching moments of Jesus in imitation of the five books of the Jewish law, or Torah, of Moses, namely Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Herein, Jesus' five great discourses are the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 through 7, discipleship in chapter 10, the parables of the kingdom of heaven in chapter 13, discipleship again here in chapter 18, and finally the end of days in chapters 24 and 25. Since two of these five teaching moments explicitly concern discipleship, one could argue that this is Jesus' chief concern. What does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean not only to confess Him in some sense, but also to pattern one's life after His? What does it mean to be a disciple of, a student of, a follower of Christ? Here in chapter 18, much of the focus is on humility and forgiveness. Two virtues often notably lacking in our world, our society, and our hearts. Peter's questioning of Jesus concerning the desired frequency of forgiveness leads to a parable found only here in Matthew's Gospel known as the unforgiving slave or the unmerciful servant. <clears throat> if one were to attempt to reduce the entire Christian religion, the entire gospel of Jesus Christ, down to but one word, that one word, if not love, would be grace or mercy or forgiveness, largely synonyms. That is most fundamentally what we receive from God through Jesus Christ. Grace, mercy, forgiveness. And ironically, that is what we most fundamentally deny to others in our lives. Isn't that fascinating? The most precious gift, blessing, we receive from God is precisely what we are least likely to share with or bestow upon our fellow human beings. Our own need for forgiveness is second only to our need for food in the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses. Those are the two principal petitions in the Lord's Prayer. And we believe and confess that God gives us both in abundance our daily bread and forgiveness of our sins. And yet many, many are hurt or a grieved person has been heard to say, I'll forgive them, but I won't, what? Forget. And it's almost always uttered in a biting, bitter, sharp tone that lets everyone around know, if not the speaker, him or herself, that forgiveness is in reality nowhere nearby, nowhere in the building. And while we may say, I forgive, but I won't forget, God says through the prophet Jeremiah, I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. 
So we separate those two concepts. Forgive and forget. God apparently joins them. As He not only forgives our sins, but He forgets them. Remembers them no more. Love, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, keeps no score, no account of wrongs. And yet most of us can recite, because they are well rehearsed, the long list of grievances we have against those who have harmed us. This outlandish gospel text we have before us this morning illustrates the absurd distance between where we are and where God would have us be. Between our appraisal of our discipleship and God's appraisal of our discipleship. Peter's initial question here is one of our consistent questions of God. Lord, if another member of the church sins against me, the context you see here involves the church, but I also invite us to apply the logic more broadly to other areas of our life. If someone sins against me, how often should I forgive them? It's a relevant question, isn't it? As many as seven times? Now, if you're anything like Peter or me, or perhaps most people, seven actually represents a generous spirit and number. Once, no problem. Twice, okay. Three times, eh, it's getting old. Four times, look, you really need to work on this behavior, okay? Five times, I don't trust you anymore. It's obviously a pattern. Six times, don't even come to me. Talk to the hand. I'm avoiding you now. You clearly have an agenda. I can love you from a distance in Christ, but I'm not trying to hang out with you or even have an extended conversation with you. Seven times? Look, just leave me alone. You go your way, I'll go mine. You do your thing, I'll do mine. Jesus' response is ridiculous, actually. It's laughable and likely impossible. Not seven times, I tell you, Jesus says, but 77 times. Other translations render it 70 times seven, and others, therefore, 490 times. Regardless, I think, the point is the same. An infinite number. Always. Constantly. Without ceasing. Never ending. Until you die. Jesus then elaborates his point with the following parable of the unforgiving servant. The parable's main point appears to be simply that we should treat others as God has treated us. We should extend to others what God has extended to us. That we should give as we have received. Such a sentiment is summarized here in verse 33. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? The king, standing in for God, asked the unforgiving servant, standing in for us on our bad days. Intellectually, in our minds, we understand this and it makes perfect sense. But in our flesh, we have trouble actually living up to it, actually heeding it in practice. The parable ends in somewhat jarring, unsettling fashion. In verses 34 and 35. And in his anger, and in anger, his Lord, his king, handed him over to be tortured until he would pay his entire debt. So my heavenly Father will also do to every one of you, Jesus says, if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. 
unpalatable though that may be, that sentiment of quid pro quo has parallels in other parts of Scripture. Immediately after teaching the Lord's Prayer here in Matthew, Jesus says, if you forgive people their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive other people their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you your trespasses. And in Luke, Jesus famously says, judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. For the measure you give will be the measure you get back. And then James, the brother of the Lord, states in his New Testament letter, judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. At the very least, then, we must remember that our most fundamental theology as Christians states that God does not ultimately deal with us according to our sins, but as a result of Jesus, gives us grace, mercy, and forgiveness that we do not deserve and hand in hand with that, calls us to extend to others what He has extended to us, to treat others as He has treated us, to bestow upon others undeservingly what has been bestowed upon us undeservingly. Now all of us know that that is easier said than done, but we must not lose sight of the fact that that is the high calling of discipleship. I suspect that what is necessary for such a transformation to occur within us, to even remotely have a chance of living this out, is a complete shift in perspective. If you're anything like me, and perhaps many others I would surmise, the level of forgiveness you're willing to extend is based largely on the gravity of the offense. If someone didn't really mean you any harm, or it was a slip-up, you can forgive. If they actively meant you harm, it's entirely different. If they apologize or ask for forgiveness, it's easier to extend. If not, if they appear to never even give it so much as a second thought, that's something different. If they injure your pride or hurt your feelings, I think we can manage to get past that. If they take away something precious from you, however, a loved one, your innocence, your willpower, your freedom, your sense of self, or your very identity, that can seem to border on the impossible. In our flesh, you see, that's our math. That's our arithmetic. That's how we sincerely feel. Because we are most concerned with ourselves and how we have been violated. The text, though, has a different calculus. In verse 24, the initial slave owes the king a debt of 10,000 talents. When he is forgiven it, he goes out mercilessly and demands of another what is owed him merely 100 denarii. The point is as obvious as it is disconcerting. What someone owes him, significant though it may be to him, is far less than what he himself owes to the king. This, you see, heightens the gravity of the offense. How can we stubbornly and indignantly refuse to release someone from what they did to us and our sense of honor and pride when what we have done in the eyes of God and heaven itself is far more grievous and a far greater offense? It's similar to when Jesus said earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, why do you see the speck 
that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye. Perhaps in the cosmic scheme of things, what someone has done to us is a speck. And what we are responsible for, vis-a-vis the divine holiness, is a log. Such a realization may not provide an instantaneous magic bullet for your particular issue, but perhaps over time it can yield a larger perspective than the boundaries of your own genuinely and seriously wounded heart. In our first lesson today from Genesis chapter 50, Joseph endured many years of suffering, injustice, betrayal, and incarceration to emerge not a bittered and cynical killjoy, but with a wisdom, a peace, and a perspective that transcended his painful experience. Am I in the place of God? He tells his brothers, who sold him off into slavery years earlier. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, that many people should be kept alive as they are to this very day. Would that God might give us such a perspective this morning, such a wisdom, such a spirit, that we too might confess that we are not God. We are not in control. We do not determine the rhythms of the universe. That things do not revolve around us as our sinful flesh and our heightened sense of aggrievement suggest to us at times. And that we too might experience such an epiphany. What others meant for our harm, God meant for good to help somebody else. I bet when somebody betrayed you, it hurt like the Dickens, but then you eventually discovered someone who appreciated you. When somebody abandoned you, you never felt so lonely and miserable, but in time, you found someone to cherish you. You may have gotten fired, downsized, or laid off, but you were later blessed with a new job at a better place. Someone may have broken you in cruel, unspeakable ways, but as horrific as that was, you now have a heart to serve others who are similarly broken, that together you may be mutually healed. What has been unjustly visited upon you, you now have a mind and a will to work to see that that does not happen to somebody else. What has been withheld from you, that was critical for your self-esteem and self-worth and well-being in life, you are now able, by the sheer grace, mercy, and transforming power of God, to infuse into the lives of all those who cross your path. When divine transcendence and holy love reach out to touch you, you are instantly humbled and reminded that you are not God, and that you are but one small part of God's grandiose creation, But oh, what a beautiful and meaningful small part you are. And in that knowledge, you are made aware that what others may do to you is not permanent, does not have the last say, is not lifelong, and certainly isn't eternal. But rather that pain can be transformed into joy. That suffering in your life can be transformed into service. That anguish you have can be transformed into glory. That your personal private hell can in effect be used by God to help usher somebody else into a sense of heaven. Defeat and depression and despondency and resignation and sadness and sorrow do not have the last word. 
but rather victory, triumph, conquest, restoration, reconciliation, and joy do. Others may have meant it for evil, but God, God means it for good. And God is more powerful than others. God is more powerful than all the others combined. That's why St. Paul can write in Romans, all things work together for good unto them that love the Lord, that are called according to His purpose. And that's why, as your heart is widening and warming even now, grace is beginning to flow not only to you, but through you. Mercy is beginning to flow not only to you, but through you. Power is beginning to flow, not only to you, but through you. Love is beginning to flow, not only to you, but through you. Healing is beginning to flow, not only to you, but through you. Forgiveness, forgiveness is beginning to flow, not only to you, not only to you, but through you, but through you to somebody else. Maybe even. God. Picking at an old wound. Amen.